your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter three. Let's recap where we've been so far. So we started the sermon series a couple of weeks ago in chapter one, seeing that Nehemiah received this bad news that the walls surrounding Jerusalem had been broken down. And so he fasts and he prays and he seeks the Lord. In chapter two, he goes before the king and he receives both permission from the king to do this project and he receives resources from the king to do it. He goes back to Jerusalem. He inspects the walls. He rallies the troops to get ready to work. He has to deal with some smack talk from Sanballat and Tobiah. And now here we are in chapter three and they're ready to get to work. And Nehemiah chapter three is going to begin to describe this building process to us of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now, this chapter, I think, is absolutely fascinating. If you've read it, you might be like, what are you talking about? Because this is how this chapter basically reads. There's about 38 names in this chapter, and it's naming all of the different people who built the different sections of the wall and the different gates. It's got a bunch of those kind of tricky Old Testament names that we're not really sure how to pronounce. And it's talking about the walls. My architects in the room are going to think this is awesome. Because uh, actually, archaeologists have used this chapter to kind of reconstruct the size of Jerusalem and the walls around Jerusalem. But that's really what this chapter is. It's a description of this wall being built. But I hope that you'll see this morning this really important truth that we're going to learn from this passage of Scripture. Because here's the main point. God calls a diverse group of people to be united in their mission to accomplish His purposes. Guys, that's the point of Nehemiah chapter 3 for us this morning, that God calls a diverse group of people to be united in their mission to accomplish His purposes. So, for the sake of time and for the sake of saving me some embarrassment, we're not going to read this entire chapter. Rather, we're just going to read the first five verses. I want to give you guys a big picture overview of this chapter, and then we'll see how it applies to our lives as followers of Christ. So let's read the first couple of verses of Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hazak, Hakaz repaired. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. And so, Father, we ask for the blessing, your blessing, upon the preaching of your word this morning. We ask that you would open up our eyes and hearts to receive what you would teach us this morning to make us more like Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, guys, I can guarantee that I just pronounced every single name exactly the way it's supposed to be. I mean, I went to seminary. You can trust me. Uh, again, just emphasizing, we got small group this week. Just be confident and no one will question it. All right, I've given you that tip again. But here's the deal. This whole chapter, it reads almost like a timesheet or like, a, like the credits at the end of a movie. He's giving us a list of names, like this person built this gate, this person built this gate, this person built this gate. He even calls somebody out. He's like, they wouldn't work. They wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. In fact, it says in one translation, they wouldn't lift a finger to serve the Lord. So Nehemiah was paying attention like a good supervisor and he's calling them out. 
But here's the deal. And he's describing the list of gates that are being built too. He names each gate for us as we go. He starts with the sheep gate. We get to the fish gate. We didn't keep reading, but we would have come to the dung gate. Uh, it's not where you would want to be assigned to work if you were working for Nehemiah. Uh, there's the horse gate. There's water gate. There's spy gate. There's deflate gate. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't resist. Uh, but Nehemiah is describing the different gates that are being built, and he's describing this process. And now, just so you know, it's, it's in the beginning of the process. The gate doesn't actually, I mean, the walls don't actually get done until chapter six. But he's describing the start of the process here for us. We don't have the time to go through this chapter verse by verse. But what I want to do is give us a big picture overview about what's happening in this chapter and how it applies to our lives as Christians. So first of all, I want to point to the diversity that we see in this text. We see incredible diversity in this text. It's fascinating. This was not a monolithic project, but Nehemiah brought together a group of people from a very diverse background. I want to show you a few things about these builders. First of all, they came from different vocations. From different vocations. Look at verse 8 as an example. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now, I am not very handy. I'm not very good with construction. That's my dad. He's been in it his whole life. But I do know that if I were to get involved in a construction project, I probably wouldn't call the goldsmiths. I definitely wouldn't call the perfumers. But these are exactly the people that Nehemiah has working on this wall. And if you were to keep going in this chapter, you've got priests that are working. You've got politicians that are working. You've got merchants that are working. All kinds of different people from different walks of life, different vocations, different jobs, all working together on the same project. And so undoubtedly, some of them would have been rich. Some of them would have been poor. Some of them would have been middle class, but they're all working together on the same mission. Likewise, there were different ages, different generations working together. I love verse 12. It says, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. You've got a man with his daughters out there working. That's heartwarming, heartwarming for me as a girl dad, even though I don't think my girls would be that helpful uh, in a construction project. But you have a man working with his daughters. And I, we can infer from that that there were probably a lot more of parents working with their kids. This is a multi-generational project. Likewise, we can infer from this verse that there were different genders. There were both men and women working together on this wall. So, so far, we have different vocations, different jobs. We have different generations and ages. We have both men and women. But next, we have different locations. What I mean by that is people are coming from different places. They live in different locations, yet they're all working on the wall. For example, some people were working right in their backyard. Verse 23, after them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. So literally, they just look in the backyard. Okay, time to go to work. Like, it's right beside their house where they're building the wall. But others came from other towns. They came from far away. Verse 7, next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah. 
the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. So they're from Gibeon, they're from Mizpah. I'll let you look up that, where that is on a map, okay? The point is it's not Jerusalem. They don't live there, but they're coming here to help build this wall. And here's what's fascinating to me. They are working hard and sacrificially to help build something that will not directly benefit them. But because they understood the vision that God had given to Nehemiah and they understood the significance of the mission, they are sacrificially working hard. And I want to pause here for a minute and I want to take a moment to honor and to remember all of the coastal people from other campuses that donated generously so that we could be sitting in this room today. Do you guys realize that we probably wouldn't be here if it weren't from the generosity for many people from Yorktown? from Williamsburg, from Hampton, people who worship in other locations, but donated generously so that we could be here and worship this morning. That's an incredible thing. And I'd like to apply it this way. If we have received such a blessing and we are able to worship together in our new building, how much more can we donate generously toward this vision that our senior pastor has given us this morning? this vision of this endowment, so that we can continue to see the kingdom of God expand and what God has done for us here be done in places all around the world. So different locations. And then finally, there was different production in this story. Different production. I already mentioned the bums uh, from the Tekoites in verse 5. It says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. But what about the rest of the Tekoites? Verse 27. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. So think about it. While their nobles couldn't be bothered to work, the rest of the Tekoites not only got their work done, but they asked for more. It said they repaired another section of the wall. I love that. So even among the workers, there's different levels of production. As I've already said, it's not equal giving. It's equal sacrifice. The nobles among them uh, were not willing to work, but the rest of them were more noble, pun intended, because they were working as hard as they could and even going above and beyond. Yet everyone who worked on this wall made a sacrifice. They used what they could in order to spread the kingdom. In the same way, God has not blessed everyone in this room the same way, nor is he obligated to. God distributes blessing as he pleases. He gives different people different amounts of time, different amounts of talent, different amounts of treasure as we say these things. God does not hold us accountable for what we have. God holds us accountable for what we do with what he has given us. Remember the parable of the talents. The landowner gave to one one talent, one to five, the other five talents, the other ten talents. They're not responsible for how much they have. They're responsible for what they do with what they do have. And so this is what we see in this text, an incredibly diverse group of people, different jobs, different ages, men and women coming from different locations and having different amounts of production. And can't you see that it's the same way in the church today? That we are an incredibly diverse group of people. Even as we look around, we consider the fact that we have different jobs, different callings, that we're different generations, all the way from babies, all the way up to the elderly. We're men and women, we come from different locations. Maybe some of you are like me and you're lost or born and raised. Maybe other people have moved here just recently. We come from different places. 
And God has given us different amounts of time, different amounts of talents, and different amounts of treasure so that we can serve him. But here's the next incredible point that we're going to see in this story. Not only is the emphasis on their diversity, but I think even more so, the emphasis is on their unity. That even though they were this incredibly diverse group of people, they all were working together in unity because they had the same mission. That's the basis of their unity, is that they had the same mission. They were all building the same wall. And I don't want to move past this too quickly because I want you to consider something. Anybody in this room who's ever been involved in leadership in any capacity, whether it's in the church, you're a small group leader, you're a ministry leader, whatever. Maybe it's in the workplace, you're an employer, you're a boss in some sort. One of the hardest things in the world to do as a leader is to get a very different group of people to all do the same thing and like it and want to do it. It's hard. I mean, if you don't believe me, try to get a bunch of people to figure out lunch plans after this. I want to go to Scoots. I want to go to Mexican. Well, I want to go, whatever. It's difficult to get a large group of people to all buy into the same mission and all do the same thing sacrificially and joyfully, but that's exactly what happens here. They were unified in their mission. We could keep unpacking this chapter, but man, with the rest of the time that we have left, I'd like to give you three truths that we learn from this text. I want to run it through the grid of the New Testament. I want to see how does this story apply to our lives as followers of Christ living 2,500 years later? The first truth I'd like to pull out of this story is the need for us to equip the saints. The need for us to equip the saints. This really struck me as I studied this chapter. There are 38 names in this chapter. And now, this is Bible trivia, whose name do you not see in this chapter? Does anyone know? Nehemiah. Of all people, well, there is a Nehemiah, not the same guy, okay? Nehemiah is the main character in this story. It's been all about Nehemiah so far. Yet when it comes to the actual building of the wall, he's absent. Does that mean that he's irrelevant here or he's not working? I don't think so. I think this is more of the significance of this. I think it's that Nehemiah delegated the responsibility of building the wall to capable people and he empowered them and equipped them to do it. He didn't feel like he had to do everything. He delegated. And in the same way, in the church, I want to be very clear, it should not be the case in the church that the pastor does everything. I hope I'm not saying that in a self-serving manner. It should not be the case in the church that the staff does everything, that the elders and deacons do everything, but rather the job of church leadership is to equip the church members to do the work of the ministry. There's some verses that are very influential around Coastal. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, is where we get this language of equipping the saints from. This is what it says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So those are the leaders in the church. Why does God give leaders to the church? Verse 12 tells us, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The church leaders equip the church members to do the work of the ministry. We like to put it this way sometimes. I am not a minister. I am an administer. 
It is my job to administrate, to equip you all to do what God has called you to do for his glory. Every single member of the church has a gift and has a calling to use for God's glory. But far too often, churches look like football games. You know I had to use a football illustration or another one. I steal this from Warren Wearsby. This is what he said. Our churches are often like football games with 80,000 people in the stands that badly need exercise and 22 people that badly need rest. You know, if we can't say amen, we ought to say ouch. Far too often, there is a very small group of people doing everything and then a very large group of people watching. It should not be that way in the church. That's not what the Lord intended. All of us, as members of the body of Christ, have been called and gifted by God to build up the church. How are you doing that? But the next way we see is that we are the body of Christ. Related to that point, we are the body of Christ. I think that Nehemiah chapter 3 is a beautiful foreshadowing of what it means for the church to be the body of Christ. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a long passage, but it's worth reading in its entirety because of how powerful and beautiful this is. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit— for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? I don't know. Ask Mike Wazowski. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Can't we see that just as in Nehemiah's day, it was a diverse group of people pursuing one mission, so it is with the church, that we are a diverse group of people all linking arms together for this mission of developing authentic followers of Jesus Christ, that we are one body in Christ. And I love that this passage shows us that every part of the body is essential. We don't get to say, well, you know, because I'm not on stage, my ministry doesn't really matter, or whatever else it might be. The Apostle Paul uses the word indispensable, that every part of the body of Christ is indispensable 
We don't get to look at any part of the body and say, you don't matter. We don't really need you. It doesn't matter. We are all one body and we're all different. We should celebrate our differences. It would be terrible if we were all exactly the same. Like you said, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? Gordon Fee put it this way, all members are necessary if it is to be a body and not a monstrosity. What makes us effective is that we are all different. Our differences in our unity is what makes us effective. So what does all of this mean for us today? If you are a Christian, if you've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and received him into your life, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit has gifted you for ministry and he has called you to serve. How are you using what you have been given to edify the church body? And you might say, Pastor Nate, I'd love to do that, but I need help finding a place. That's what we're here for, to equip you to do the work of the ministry. So here's a couple of ways that you can get plugged in. You can go to gocoastal.org served and sign up for one of our ministries. You can write on your connect card that you're looking for a place to serve, and we will reach out to you this week and help you get plugged in. We would love to help you find a place where you can use your spiritual gifts to edify the body. I want to show you one last thing this morning from this passage, and that is when it comes to building this wall, and indeed when it comes to us and our mission to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ, the focus is on worship from beginning to end. That's the point of all of it, so that Jesus Christ would be worshiped. I want to show you something from Nehemiah chapter 3, and I promised him I would give him credit. If he ever listens, he'll, he'll know this. Uh, Hunter Boone, he's our worship and student pastor from Williamsburg, and a buddy of mine pointed this out in this text, and I thought it was brilliant. Look at how this passage both starts and ends in Nehemiah chapter 3. First, look at verse 1 again. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. Keep that in mind. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. All right, now go to the last verse in the chapter, verse 32. In between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, there it is again, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So the construction strategy was start at the sheep gate, go all the way around Jerusalem, and end at the sheep gate. And that is the gate that is consecrated. Big deal, Pastor Nate. Why should you care about the sheep gate? Because that was the gate that was right in front of the temple. And that's called the sheep gate because that's the gate that the sheep would come through from the fields that would be sacrificed in the temple. It was the gate that was consecrated because through it, God would be worshiped. So from the beginning and the end of this project, they are doing this with the intention that God will be worshiped through it, that it is for the glory of God. But this entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament and all of the animals that were sacrificed and all of it that we read about, we ought to know as Christians that it was never an end in itself, but it was intended to point forward to the ultimate sacrifice for our sins to the Lamb of God who would come and would take away the sins of the world, that Jesus Christ, I'm reminded of his words in John chapter 10, where Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a higher hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Church, this points us to Christ, the one who is the good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for us so that we might be forgiven. So as we are moving forward with this mission to bring the gospel to the nations, we must always keep this at the center, that from beginning to end, the purpose of all of it, the purpose of endowments and campuses and schools and all of these other things is that Jesus Christ might be worshiped and exalted. So as the worship and the prayer teams come forward now, I wanted to leave you with one final thought this morning. This morning, we have talked about a very bold vision becoming a reality. A very bold vision in Nehemiah's day, a very bold vision in our day. And our senior pastor this morning has laid out before us a very bold vision and strategy about how we as a church for the next decade and beyond can continue to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And in Nehemiah's day, as they're looking over the rubble and the ruins, they're considering all of their enemies that are up against them. They're considering the cost that this project will be. They might look at it and be tempted to think, this is impossible. And likewise, as we look at this mission of developing authentic followers of Christ, and we look at the darkness in the world around us, and we look at the cost that it might be, we might be tempted to say something similar. Like, Pastor Nate, that's a lot. That seems impossible. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you with the words of Hudson Taylor. Maybe a few of you have heard of Hudson Taylor. He was a British missionary in the 1800s to China. He founded the China Inland Mission. And through his efforts in his lifetime, the China Inland Mission became an international mission body with 825 missionaries in all 18 provinces of China. It had more than 300 mission stations, 500 local Chinese mission helpers, and in his lifetime, 25,000 converts to Christ in China. And this is what Hudson Taylor said about his life's work. There are three stages in every great work of God. Impossible, difficult, done. Impossible, difficult, done. There's that moment where we get this initial vision and we go, that's impossible. That can't happen. Then we start and we're like, all right, this is difficult. This is not easy. Well, guess what? God never promised it would be. But then we get to the point where it's done. And we go, oh my gosh, look at what God has done. This is amazing. It might feel impossible to rebuild a wall that's been in ruins for 150 years. It might feel impossible 
to one day grow to be a 10-campus church. It might feel impossible to establish a Christian school district so that my children and yours and our grandchildren can be raised and educated with a Christian worldview. But in all of these things, we must remember that we serve the God for whom all things are possible. When we are speaking of our God, the word impossible should not even be in our vocabulary, church. Because this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the God for whom all things are possible. So let's trust him. Let's follow him. And like Nehemiah, let's get to work. Amen. Let's close in prayer. God, we praise you that with you, all things are possible. Lord, we can look at the mission that you've given us and be intimidated by the size and scope of it. But Lord, we cast our eyes on Christ. We know that with you, all things are possible. We know, Lord, that you have promised that you will build your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, Lord, we follow you and we obey you. We seek to accomplish your will of making disciples. Help us, Father. Strengthen us. Equip us. God, we pray that as we go from this place today, you would help us to see this vision of what you're doing and help us to be faithful to follow you every single step of the way. We love you. We give you all the glory. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.